So welcome to Music 316 for Monday, November 30th, 2009. Thanks again to Andre Elias for his live demonstration on tabla drums last Wednesday. We may have one more live appearance in the class. I'll let you know about that. We'll be hearing our listening example with the tabla drums in a few minutes, but First, there's one additional thing I have to tell you about the Drupad song in example number one on CD5. I had you learn the pronunciation of the old Hindi song text here, but I didn't tell you what it meant. You see the English translation on page one of your handout next, next to the original language. As soon as they heard the flute of Krishna the cowherd, the girls of the Vrinda forest ran toward their lover. Who's Krishna the cowherd? Krishna the cowherd, it turns out, is one of the gods of the Hindu religion. There are 33 million gods in the Hindu religion, according to the count of some Hindu religious philosophers. That's a lot to keep track of. And, of course, people don't actively worship all of them. Some, some of the main ones, there are the three main gods whose names are Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. They are often explained as Brahma is the creator of the universe, Vishnu the preserver of the universe, and Shiva, the destroyer of the universe, which makes it sound like Shiva is some kind of a devil in Western terms, but Shiva is not a devil. He is a god who shares in the guidance of the universe through its repeated cycles of creation and destruction and new creation again. Because in Hindu philosophy, the universe does not just go on in a straight line forever, but like a human being, like a living thing, it frequently gives birth to a new universe and grows and dies and is reborn as a new universe. This is what happens to living creatures in Hinduism. This is what happens to human beings. You are born, you grow, you die and you are reborn again in a new form. This is also what happens to the universe. And so Brahma is the god who guides the new universe coming into being after it has dissolved and disappeared. Vishnu is the one who helps to preserve it during its existence. And Shiva is the one who guides it into the dissolution at the end that allows it to become recreated, that allows it to reconstitute itself and go on as a new universe. And so you have cycles of creation and destruction of the universes. And these go on over an incalculably long period of time. There are estimates in the billions and trillions of years and even bigger numbers because Indian mathematicians very long ago 
develop a science of very, uh, extremely large numbers to deal with astronomical distances and astronomical calculations of periods of time. So these then are the three gods connected with these stages of the universe. But again, not all of them receive equal amounts of worship because Brahma is the one whose work is finished, at least for a few million or billion or trillion or maybe godzillion years. We don't know exactly how long. But this universe is already created, and so Brahma's work is over. He can take the day off or take the next few trillion years off. And now the two that we have to think of are Vishnu and Shiva. And so these are the two gods out of the three that get most <coughs> worship. And most contemporary Hindus in their religious practice tend to fall into either Vaishnavite or Shaivite practices, depending on whether their main worship is of Vishnu or of Shiva. Now, let's just focus in on these two, Vishnu and Shiva. Yeah. Uh, I just had a question about uh, Brahma. You, you said that they don't worship uh, that one because it's created the world and it's not, it's not going to have a job for a while, or it's not. Is Shiva constantly destroying things, or is that, or... No, but he will be. He'll be involved with the world's destruction. But he's active in the world on a regular basis. Destroying things isn't, isn't the only thing he ever does. Okay. And there's a lot of really interesting stuff about Shiva that I wish, I wish we had the time to go into. Um, he's a very colorful god. He's a kind of a mountain ascetic. A, meditator who wanders in the mountains alone by himself and who um, uh, does all kinds of special meditation. He's a god who hangs out in graveyards and watches the decaying of corpses. And he's somebody who deals with the sort of harder side of life, with the, um, the, su the sufferings and the um, uh, aggressions and, 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 and sort of the darker things that happen in life. Um, um, and um, uh, Shiva is a very interesting kind of figure. And so in, some, in some texts you get the feeling that um, he's almost on the verge of getting kicked out of the pantheon of gods because he's uh, just a little bit... Um, um, to one side or the he's dirty. You know, people always complain about how dirty he is. And he uh, never combs his hair. His hair's flying out in all directions. He dresses in animal skins, and sometimes they're bloody. And, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's just um, uh, not the kind of friend you want to bring home for Thanksgiving dinner with, with your family um, uh, because they might be a little bit uncomfortable with him. Shiva is a great guy. I mean, you've got to um, find out about Shiva if you're going to learn anything about Hinduism. But 
what we want to do right now for the moment, because we're looking at this one song, is to focus in on Vishnu. Shiva is who he is. He's pretty much one guy. Once in a while, he'll appear in a different form. Once in a while, he might appear as a, um, a, a nice young man or a Brahmin priest or uh, somebody very respectable. Sometimes he'll be an old person, but usually he's that guy with the long, dirty hair and um, his blue-colored skin, and he um, you know, has smeared with ashes and um, sort of um, looking like he like he just came came in out of the graveyard or out out of the mountains um, after being marooned there for forty years or something. Vishnu is very different. Vishnu is a peaceful, well-dressed, um, uh, you know, sort of god that you that you would be proud to um, um, have your parents meet at uh, at Thanksgiving. But Vishnu is a more complex character in a way, because he doesn't always appear in the same form. In fact, he has 12 different forms that he appears in. He appears as one of a number of avatars. That's a word that you know probably from computer games or computer applications, but it's originally a Sanskrit word, and it means a projected self, a self that is projected in a new and different form for a particular purpose. And Vishnu appears in very diverse forms. I mean, in one form, he's a turtle. And in one form, he's a boar, a wild pig. But he also appears as gods in human form and we already ran into one of those human form <laughs> avatars of the god Vishnu. Rama, the hero of the Ramayana epic, is a form of the god Vishnu. And so is Krishna. Now you remember there were two big Hindu epics that spread all over Southeast Asia. And one of them was the Ramayana, starring Rama, the prince whose wife Sita was kidnapped by the demon king of Sri Lanka. And he had to raise the monkey army and go free her. So that is one of the forms that the god Vishnu appears in. And the other main form that he appears in, I said there were 12, but these are the two main ones that you hear the most of in Hindu religious literature. The other main one is Krishna. Krishna appears in the other Hindu epic, not the Ramayana, but the Mahabharata. Mahabharata is the epic about the war between two royal families of India and how they are lined up, ready to fight this huge battle that is certainly going to end in deaths for hundreds, maybe thousands of innocent people, people who didn't deserve to die. And one of the heroes of one of the two armies is in his chariot watching the armies gather and says, I can't do this. I can't go kill my friends and relatives who I know are good, brave, nice people. And now just because we're in this stupid war, I have to kill them? They have to kill me? 
what's this all about anyhow? This is wrong. I'm not going to do it. At which point, his chariot driver turns around and looks him in the eye and says, you have to do it because I am God and I'm telling you that this is your destiny. Every person acquires a certain karma from their past lives and their past deeds that makes them have to do certain things in this, this life, whether they want to or not. And the only way that you can be here in this army facing your friends and relatives and faced with the need to fight and kill people is because of your past deeds, because you've acquired the karma, the cause and effect relationships between who you were then and who you are now that makes it necessary for you to be you, for you to fill, fulfill your own destiny and live and do what you are supposed to do and, as you live this life. Put in that very simple way, it sounds like a crude and unattractive philosophy. And I apologize for simplifying it so that you can get a basic idea of what some of, of, what some of the content is in just a couple of minutes. Because this is not a soundbite. This is not something that you should deal with in a short attention span moment and then go away feeling that you know about it. What I've told you so far is not enough to understand the message of Krishna or of the separate book called Bhagavad Gita, literally God's song, that gives the words and the ideas of Krishna from, from the Mahabharata. And I encourage you to look at that sometime. It's not um, as bleak as what I've had to squeeze the essence of the, of, the, of, the, of the message into. Indeed, it is at bottom a um, hopeful, if ambiguously hopeful, religious message. And Krishna is not the character from the dark side that that brief summary might make you suspect. Um, Krishna is in fact the most playful of the Hindu gods. And you can see that in the rest of his life because the other stories about Krishna are of his human birth in a, in a farming family, specifically a family, family of cowherders. He belonged to a family that raised cows and um, he would go out as a young man every day to herd the cows, to take them around to where there was grass to eat and water to drink. And there he would meet the girls who herded cows, gopis, or cowherd girls. Now you might have guessed what Krishna's relationship with these girls would be like from his young childhood when he was born. The first thing that his parents noticed was his love for butter. And he loved to get butter and he loved to eat butter. And he would sneak around in the house when his parents weren't looking and he would tip over the churns, the jars that his parents churned butter in and kept it in to keep it cool and 
spill the cream on the floor and um, stick his finger in and lick the butter out of, out, out, out of the jar. And even today, there are posters that you can get in Hindu religious goods stores of the little baby Krishna smiling and licking the butter off his thumb that he has spilled out of his parents' butter supply. You know, typical American kid in a way. Um, I don't know what you guys licked off your thumbs in infancy, but, um, uh, well, it's a good start toward a life of not feeling shameful about sensual pleasures, but rather enjoying them as they come. It's a good life also if you um, like to trick people a little bit, if you like to tease people and have fun with people, like trick your parents into getting a little extra butter that they hadn't intended to give you. Now, what do you suppose Krishna does when he grows up? Well, he goes out with the young cowherd girls, and he's a young cowherd boy, and he teases them and plays tricks on them. And one of his favorite tricks is to wait until the girls go swimming and they've left their saris, their dresses, and their clothes on the bank of the river or the pond that they're swimming in. And he sneaks up and he grabs their clothes and climbs a tree with them. And then he sits up there in the tree playing his flute because Krishna is a musician like many um, like, like many animal herders all over the world, he plays a flute while he herds his animals, and he also plays a flute while he teases his girlfriends. And so here he's sitting up in the tree with all of their clothes hanging down, and he's playing the flute, nice, playful music, and the girls are all, asshole, come on, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, they're all in love with the handsome, tricky, smart, suave, bad boy Krishna. And that's Krishna's other identity. He's the bad boy God. He's the trickster God. He's the God that people love to hate and hate to love. But the girls just go crazy for Krishna because he's you know, just the smartest, bravest, you know, and um, meanest, and uh, it's closed back, but um, you know, they're really not so angry that Krishna's got their clothes and they don't. So, this is Krishna, and this is what this song is about. As soon as they heard the flute of Krishna the cowherd, the girls of Rinda Forest ran towards their lover. And then we hear the voice of one of the girls. While he kept me under the charm of his deceitful tender words, the crafty liar broke my pearl necklace. While I searched for the pearls, Krishna with his friends surrounded me and took hold of me. Well, as you can imagine, this sounds like fun. It was a fun experience. What's this got to do with God? The same thing, really, that the... Sufi devotional songs have to do with God. God is that which gives you life, and you long for union with God. 
the way that you long for union with a lover. And Krishna is God, and the clearest, most vivid, most direct and personal way to experience a desire for God is to experience the desire of Krishna's girlfriends to be united with their lover. This is a kind of religious practice and ideas called bhakti, devotion or devotionalism. The desire to be one with God, the feeling that you can be one with God if you let yourself experience the kind of intense personal desire for God that you would have between two lovers. If you could become like God's lover, if you could become united, truly united with your lover, this would be a small taste of what it would be to be truly united with God. There is a special form of this bhakti devotionalism called Radha Krishna Bhakti that is practiced all over India, but especially in South India, where you, you, I say, to the whole class, if you were Hindus following Radha Vishnu Bhakti, would visualize yourself as Radha, the girl who actually gets Krishna, the one who becomes his lover and his wife, and of course, Radha herself turns out to be a goddess, and she becomes the bride of Krishna. And in Radha Krishna Bhakti, you, whether you are a man or a woman, visualize yourself as Radha, the bride of Krishna, becoming one with him, experiencing as far as you can the desire of the young bride to become one with her lover with her husband, and doing that primarily through singing love songs. And so Radha Krishna Bhakti is a practice of singing love songs together to God as your lover and to view yourself as the lover of God. Now, by the way, I mentioned worship of both Shiva and Vishnu, and there's also a Shiva Bhakti or devotion, which is completely different from the Krishna bhakti or devotion. Because Shiva bhakti is a devotion of a soldier to his captain or a servant to a king. In other words, it's a completely different kind of devotion than the devotion of lover to lover. But it is still the devotion of somebody who wants to become one with God and who wants to so completely give himself to the service of God that he becomes a part of God, serving him. So that's what this song is about. And many, many songs of Drupad and, for that matter, of North, North Indian classical music are songs that express this kind of devotion, the bhakti, between Krishna and the cowherds, or specifically between Krishna and Radha, the one who becomes his wife. 
Now the question is, does that make them religious songs? Um, it's kind of hard to say because the ideals of a culture seep so deeply into its literature and into its songs that there are ways in which you could identify almost any song from a given culture as also belonging to the religion of that culture. For instance, in American culture, pretty much all songs believe in the kind of an individual human self that comes out of the theology of Judaism and Christianity, the independent self-existent soul that exists forever. And uh, that's a very different kind of belief, for instance, than the soul in Hindu religious thought that is constantly being reborn in different forms, or likewise in Buddhist religious thought, also a reincarnating soul and one that does not exist in the same form e eternally. In that sense, all American songs are uh, growths out of a very deep layer of religious experience of a particular religious um, heritage. And so also, many of the songs in Hindu or Buddhist cultures are outgrowths of a different kind of religious heritage. So is this a religious song or isn't it? I'm not really sure, but it's often used for people celebrating Hindu festivals and they hire musicians to come and perform at those festivals at their houses. They'll come and say, well, will, you know, will you come and sing for us um, for holy or for another Hindu religious festivals? And so the musicians come and sing about devotion to a Hindu god. And who are the musicians here? The Duggar brothers are Muslims. The whole family is Muslim. And they are here singing about devotion to a Hindu god love for a Hindu god, and ideals of the Hindu religion. This is a very common thing in India, that you have Muslim musicians performing Hindu religious songs for Hindu audiences, for Hindu religious festivals, and likewise you have Hindu musicians who will perform for Muslim audiences with songs with a more Muslim theme. So, this is a place where music transcends religion and builds bridges between competing religious communities. Tomorrow we'll go on to unit number six, uh, CD number six, I'm sorry, um, South Asian regional and religious music. You should print out that handout to bring to class. <laughs>